Acts chapter 14. This morning we will begin in verse 8 and read through the end of the chapter. So Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. They were sent out by their home church there in Syrian Antioch. They sailed first to the island of Cyprus. It was on that island that they encountered a false teacher named Bar-Jesus whom Paul rebuked and a Roman proconsul who converted to Christ through the gospel, through the preaching of the gospel. They moved on from that island. They sailed up to the southern coast of Galatia, preached the gospel in Pamphylia and Perga, and then thereafter trekked a hundred miles or so inland to another Antioch, this one Pisidian Antioch. And it was there that we We had the first recorded gospel sermon from the Apostle Paul as we looked at that in chapter 13. But then in response to the preaching of the gospel, there was opposition. And we looked at the opposition there in Antioch, and then that opposition continued as they moved on to Iconium a little further east. And now they come to the city of Lystra which is a little bit further east from that. Paul and Barnabas will spend some time here in Lystra and then in Derby, And then at that point, they're going to do a 180. They're going to turn around and they're going to track back through all of the cities that they had visited, ending up finally at Syrian Antioch, which is where this passage will end this morning at the end of that first missionary journey. The context for this passage, and really the context, the broader context of the entire book of Acts, is the advancement of gospel mission. Jesus gave the marching orders again in Acts 1 verse 8. So you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, which he did at Pentecost. And then he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so as we've tracked our way through the book of Acts, we've seen that gospel advancing. First on the streets of Jerusalem, and then in the surrounding region of Judea, and then in the neighboring region of Samaria, and now we see the gospel advancing, beginning to advance to the ends of the earth through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. But here's the key for this passage this morning. When the advancement of that gospel mission is threatened, first by the blasphemous accolades of man, and then by opposition and hostility to the gospel, Paul and Barnabas respond in three ways. They seek to safeguard the gospel. They're willing to suffer for the mission And they seek to strengthen the churches so that the ministry and the mission would continue. So let's read Acts 14, beginning in verse 8 and going through the end of the chapter. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. 
But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe, where they had where they had preached the gospel, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and they came to Pamphylia, when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adelia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege and the blessing it is to gather with your people and sing your praises, worship you, bow before you in humble repentance of our sins, and together to rehearse the gospel from your word that our only hope in light of our sinfulness is your plan of salvation to send your son Jesus to live the perfect life we couldn't and to die in our place on a cross so that anyone who trusts in you, places their faith in you as their only hope, would be rescued from what they deserve. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of singing that gospel and hearing that gospel. And now, Father, as we consider the implications of this gospel for how we are to spend the rest of our lives pray that you'd speak to us from your word. We thank you for the witness and testimony and the life of Paul and Barnabas, especially this part of their first missionary journey. And Father, may the lessons of their life speak into our lives so that we would be people who bring great glory to you as we engage in the mission that you have sent us on as well. We ask this, that you would do this, and we pray this in faith in Jesus' name. So as we see from that passage, this passage this morning will take us from Iconium to Lystra and then to Derby, and then they'll turn around at Derby and pretty much track their way all the way back through the cities that they had traveled through, ending back up at their home church as they're reunited with their church family in Antioch at the end. But the bulk of the action in this passage takes place in the city of Lystra. Now, there are two things that happen to Paul and Barnabas in this city that seem as if they are diametrically opposed. So much so that it's hard to imagine how they could happen in the same city, uh, in the same setting, and, and by the same people, no less. In the first setting, the people of Lystra react to Paul healing this man who was crippled from birth by treating he and Barnabas as if they are gods. And then in the second setting, in the same very same city, the very same people, riled up by the unbelieving Jews who travel from Antioch and from Iconium, they now rile up the people of Lystra and those people of Lystria who days earlier had been showering Paul and Barnabas with divine accolades now pick up rocks to stone them to death. On one hand, we see the blasphemous accolades of man, the applause of man, the adulation of man. And on the other hand, we see the opposition of man, the hostility and reviling of man because of an offensive gospel. Both of these come from the same source, the, the very same people of the city of Lystra. 
And both have the very same potential to dissuade Paul and Barnabas from continuing to advance the gospel mission that Jesus gave them to take to the ends of the earth. Both situations threaten to impede this mission from going forward. Think about it. If Paul and Barnabas had allowed the people of Lystra to treat them as gods and worship them and offer sacrifices to them, then the mission would have come to a grinding halt in Lystra. And surely God would have raised up someone else to continue to advance the gospel mission, but it wouldn't have come through Paul or Barnabas. Likewise, later, when the, when the Jews who had hounded Paul and Barnabas from Antioch to Iconium, then they show up now in Lystra, and they convince the crowds that Paul and Barnabas aren't gods, but instead they deserve death. And they persuaded them to pick up rocks and stone them. It's incredible that this is the same crowd that only days earlier were applauding them and treating them as gods. To the blasphemous accolades of man, Paul and Barnabas respond by seeking to safeguard the gospel and stand for truth. And in the face of opposition and hostility that came later, Paul and Barnabas respond by a willingness to suffer for the sake of the mission so that they would continue to preach the gospel and make disciples at every opportunity that they're given. So let's look a little bit more closely at each of these stories. First, this story of the healing of the man who was crippled from birth in verses 8 through 18. And it's here we see that Paul and Barnabas, as they respond to what happens, they are safeguarding gospel truth. There's a lot here that we could spend time on, and we'll touch on some of it, but I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. One of the things that we notice first is that Paul and Barnabas don't go into the synagogue first. That's the thing that they had done in each of the other cities. When they first came to the city, they go to the cities, they preach the gospel of Jesus to the Jews that are there. Well, they don't go into the synagogue here, presumably because there isn't one. There's not a synagogue in ancient Lystra because there were no Jews in ancient Lystra and there were no, apparently no God-fearing Gentiles here. <clears throat> the audience here for Paul and Barnabas is an entirely pagan Gentile audience. But second, we should note here the similarity between Paul's healing of this man who was crippled from birth, the similarity to Peter's healing of the lame beggar in chapter 3, who was also lame from birth. In both situations, they're both infirm from birth, we're told. In both situations, the one who performs the miracle looks intently at them. It happened with Peter, and it happens here with Paul. Looks intently at the person. In both situations, the, the healing comes at the command of First Peter and then Paul saying, stand up, rise up, and walk. But that's where the similarities end. And there are a couple of notable differences between those two stories. First of all, in this story, we're told that when Paul looks intently at this man who was crippled from birth, one of the things that he sees in him is, quote, a faith to be made well. Now, what is that? What are we to make of that? Well, I, don't, I think we should be cautioned not to make too much of that one phrase. Some have pulled that phrase out of context and used it as a proof text to address the health part of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on trying to debunk the prosperity gospel from this passage because that's not what this passage is about. This passage is about blasphemy and idolatry in that city. But we do find a number of times in Scripture when there seems to be a connection between faith and some kind of healing, most notably in the gospel accounts of Jesus' earthly ministry. In Matthew chapter 9 and Mark 5, both passages which tell us the story of the woman who had a bleeding disorder. She had been bleeding for 12 years, and Jesus healed her 
And he says, your faith has made you well. He says the same thing to the ten lepers in Luke 17. He says the same thing again in the next chapter, Luke 18, when he restores sight to the blind person. And also, interestingly enough, on the flip side, in Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus is in Nazareth, we're told that Jesus didn't do many miracles in Nazareth. Why? Because of their lack of faith. These and other passages inform us that that in these instances, faith was the instrument that God chose to use. It was the instrument that, that that was the means of God's working and operating to perform a healing, to perform a miracle. It doesn't mean that the individual's faith was operative. In each of these situations, God was the one who was operative in these healings. God was the one who performed the miracle. But the individual's faith was the instrument that God chose to use in his operative work of healing the individual. And in this case here in Acts 14, there was something about this crippled man. As he listened to Paul preaching, because we're told he was, he's listening to Paul as Paul preaches to the people in Lystra. But there must have been something about the way he was listening to Paul that indicated to Paul that this guy had that kind of faith. Maybe he was nodding along with Paul as Paul preached, or maybe it was just spiritual discernment on Paul's part that he understood that this man was tracking with the gospel. And so he told him, stand up. And immediately he, we're told that he sprang up and he began walking. But the key difference between the story of Peter's healing in chapter 3 and Paul's healing here in chapter 14 is the response of the people who are standing around. In chapter 3, the Jews who were there in and around the temple, they saw that this man who was lame from birth, standing up and walking around, praising God, they too rejoiced and praised God. They recognized that Yahweh had done a great work through a man. But here in chapter 14, something very different happens. Instead of recognizing that God had used a man to perform a miracle, These people of Lystra are convinced that these men are, in fact, gods themselves. They think Barnabas is Zeus. They think Paul is Hermes because Hermes was kind of the spokesperson of Mount Olympus. He was the one who brought messages from the gods to the people. And that's what Paul was doing. He was bringing a message from God. And so they thought he was Hermes The priest of Zeus that was there in the city brings oxen uh, to to make sacrifices to uh, Barnabas and Paul or Zeus and Hermes. So this situation presented Paul and Barnabas with two very distinct dangers. First, the accolades of man. And secondly, blasphemy of man. And this really gets to the heart of our passage this morning. In treating them as gods and making them out to be gods, a temptation was set before Paul and Barnabas like a worm on a hook that is set before a fish. And it was a temptation to be lured away from advancing the mission, advancing gospel mission, to be lured away from that by being enticed by the accolades and the applause and the adulation of man. Thankfully, Paul and Barnabas, because they were mature in their walk with Christ, they were mature in their faith, and they loved Jesus deeply enough, they didn't fall victim to this enticement. But church, aren't we all too familiar with stories of pastors and preachers and speakers who do fall victim to the accolades of man. Men who at one time had a single-minded devotion to serve God by serving His people, but somewhere along the line, they lost that servant-mindedness and 
They thought the church existed to serve them. And before long, the ministry exists to elevate the personality instead of the person existing to serve the bride of Christ. It becomes all about the person. They get all the accolades, all the book deals, all the speaking engagements at conferences, and it becomes intoxicating. And by the way, this is not something that is only relegated on the large platforms. It could happen on small platforms as well. It could happen in a church like ours. I was talking with a young man preparing for ministry this week and warning them of the danger of the platform, the danger of the accolades of man. I was warning him that we need to be very wary of what innocent compliments of one's preaching, however innocent they are, of what that does to the sinful flesh if we're not careful. The flesh loves to be showered with affection and admiration and congratulatory affirmation. And once it's got a taste for it, it's very difficult to wean it off of it. And again, I'm thankful, we should be thankful that this was not a problem for Paul and Barnabas in this particular situation. And perhaps that's because this was in no way a subtle thing that they did. This was in-your-face blasphemy. In saying that Paul and Barnabas were gods, the people were saying something false, something untrue about God. They were denying monotheism in favor of polytheism. And it was making God out to be like man. And God is not like man. We are made in his image, yes, but we are not like God. So this was both a temptation to be lured away from gospel mission in favor of the lack accolades of men, but it was also a potential derailment of the mission if this blasphemy went unaddressed. So what did they do? How did they respond to this threat to the advancement of gospel mission? Well, we're told the first thing that they did is they expressed deep sorrow and grief as a result of this. They tore their clothes, which was a symbolic gesture of mourning and grief for the ancients. It signified deep emotional pain that one felt when a dear loved one had passed away, or as in this case, when God himself was blasphemed. Blasphemy is insulting or showing contempt for God in our thoughts, actions, or words. Now, the crowds here in Lystra certainly, I don't think, were intending to show contempt for God or, or insult God. But in comparing Paul and Barnabas to God and making them out to be gods and worshiping them as gods, they were doing just that. It's both blasphemy and, in another sense, idolatry because they were fashioning gods out of man. And Paul and Barnabas considered it to be such a violence against the character and nature of God that they rent their clothes, showing the deep anguish and pain that they felt inside themselves at God's character and nature being treated this way. As I thought about this, it made me think about all the ways that we are bombarded with blasphemy in our world today. And in the next thought, thinking how little I express sorrow and grief over that. When God's name is profaned in speech around us or even from us, or in the media and, and entertainment that we allow into our homes. When God's character is assaulted in the media and in the court of public opinion, it ought to break our hearts. So much so that we rend our proverbial garments in grief and sorrow. But Paul and Barnabas didn't just tear their garments, they also proclaimed truth and they preached the gospel 
Verse 14 says that they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd, crying out, verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? That's a rebuke. Guys, why are you doing these things? The inference is you ought not to be doing them. Don't treat us as gods. And then comes the correction. We also are men of like nature with you. In other words, we're just men. We're just men like you. We're not gods. That's the correction. And then they preach the gospel. Look at the rest of verse 15. It says, and we bring you good news. Bring you good news is, a, is one verb in the Greek, uangelizo. It means we evangelize you. We, we, we bring, we gospel you. It's gospel as a verb. We're, we're bringing you good news. And what is that good news? That you should turn from these vain things to a living God. From the context of this chapter, it's clear that Paul preached the gospel there in Lystra on many occasions. And so what we don't find here in these few verses is a fully orbed gospel sermon like the one that we found in chapter 13 when Paul was in Pisidian Antioch. Here we find what is more like a gospel application. And the, the application of the gospel here is that we should turn from these vain things. Vain things like fashioning men into gods. Turn from these vain things and turn to a living God. Turn to a living God. What Paul is doing here, he's, he's peeling back the, the curtain on what they were doing. He says, why are you doing these things? Why, why are you treating us like gods? Why, why are you trying to, to worship man? He was revealing their need to worship something. He was revealing their need to pay homage to something or someone bigger than themselves and so then Paul and Barnabas reflectively say, we're not bigger than you. We're the same as you. Don't worship us. We're, we're not bigger than, we're not the ones to pay homage to. We're just like you. But there is a God who has sent us here to bring you good news, to gospel you. And that God can be found, but he's not found in vain things like fashioning men into gods. This God is the God of all creation, as verse 15 concludes, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And then Paul and Barnabas in verse 16 point to the sovereignty of this creator God. They tell them in past generations, this God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he didn't leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. In other words, this creator God didn't at first come to you and reveal himself and his ways to you. Why? Because he came to his chosen people, Israel. But he didn't leave you without a witness. He gave you witness of who he is and what he's like through his creation. He shows you what his character is like by caring for you and providing for you through fruitful seasons and rains, satisfying your hearts with goodness and gladness. And the inference here is that while no special revelation had been given from this creator God to the nations to this point, now there was. Now there was. Previously, he let them do their own thing. There was no special revelation to the nations. But now this good news is coming to the nations because he had sent his people, his servants, to bring them this good news of how they can know this God. And it's through his son, Jesus Christ. All of this is in response to the blasphemy and the idolatry of the people of Lystra. Now, I'm not going to say that our application here is that we should rend our garments every time someone uses the Lord's name in vain. But I am saying that when our God is insulted and blasphemed in the culture around us, 
it ought to elicit a measure of sorrow and grief in our hearts. I struggled a bit with what our application of this principle should be for our lives today. The culture of ancient, the ancient lands was very visible and outward in their display of emotional pain. They rent their garments. They mourned loudly and wailed at funerals. In the sophisticated Western culture, we are a good bit less free with our emotional pain. So I struggle with what outward display of sorrow is appropriate when God is insulted or blasphemed, but perhaps it's not about the display of that sorrow as much as it is simply the experience of being saddened when our God is offended and His character and nature are assaulted. You see, the more we are aware of the supreme glory and majesty and goodness and grace of our King, the more it will hurt and the more we will grieve when He is blasphemed. And perhaps if we're not in any way saddened and grieved by blasphemy against our God, perhaps that's the degree to which our apathy about his character and nature serves to reinforce the very blasphemy that ought to bring us sadness. Could it be that our lack of sorrow at God's character being assaulted is in fact telling a lie about who God is and what he is like, that he's really not that great, that he's really not that glorious and majestic and good and loving? And when we encounter untruth in the world about who God is and what he is like, we should also, like Paul and Barnabas, tell the truth about God. They rebuked and corrected the people of Lystra when they treated them as gods. In essence, what they were, do, what they were doing is that they were telling the people that their actions were sinful. Now that's that's perhaps pretty difficult to do, isn't it? To tell someone that their actions are a sin. But it is oh so necessary, church. Church, we live in a world that's gone crazy. Evil is called good and good is called evil. And we don't do anyone any favors if we don't call sin, sin. It's not a mistake. It's not a lifestyle choice. It's not a bad habit. It's not an addiction. It's sin. And if we can't bring ourselves to call sin what it is, then we're not doing any favors to the ones who are headed for a Christless eternity precisely because of their sin. Thomas Watson said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And in order for sin to be bitter, we can't see it as just a mistake or a lifestyle choice. See, folks need to come to grips with the reality that there is a sovereign creator God who has the right to set boundaries for mankind. And that man will be held accountable to this sovereign creator God for having trespassed those boundaries. Only then, only then will sinners see the need for rescue afforded through Jesus' Son who took the penalty that we deserve. So to sum up what Luke records here about Paul and Barnabas in this story is that in response to what happened there in Lystra, in the first half of the chapter, they were safeguarding the gospel. They were safeguarding truth by expressing sorrow at blasphemy and telling the truth about God and His ways. The question is, will we also have the courage to likewise safeguard the gospel 
when our culture does and says something that tells a lie about who our God is? Will we retreat in those instances into our Christian little circles and then point and complain about how bad the world is out there? Or will we engage in gospel mission and seek to advance that gospel mission by engaging cultural lies about God with biblical truth about God? Will we have that courage? The former strategy of insulation and isolation will only serve to prevent us from being the salt and light that God intends for us to be. The latter strategy, the strategy chosen by Paul and Barnabas of risking whatever in order to tell the truth about God, no matter the consequences, keeps us marching onward, keeps us advancing Jesus' mission to the ends of the earth. Now, after this story about how the people tried to treat Paul and Barnabas as gods after they healed the crippled man. Luke then tells of these Jews who came from Antioch and then showed up in Iconium. And now they're in Lystra. In both of those previous cities, they riled up the crowds to persecute Paul and Barnabas. In Antioch, they drove Paul and Barnabas out of the city. In Iconium... Paul and Barnabas had to flee under threat of stoning. And now in Lystra, they make good on that threat. And they stone Paul. Listen to verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now the they there, the they that stoned Paul, is the same they that only days earlier had been showering divine accolades on Paul and Barnabas in the very same city. Reminds us of the crowds of Jerusalem, does it not? The crowds who yelled, crucify him, who only days earlier had shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, one very practical reason not to be lured by the accolades and applause of man is that man can be extraordinarily fickle about what he wants and what he likes and what pleases him. And his accolades and applause can turn into opposition and hostility and throwing rocks in the blink of an eye. So now we're talking about suffering for the sake of mission because of opposition and hostility to the gospel. Matt preached a great sermon last week on this very topic as he covered the last few verses of chapter 13 and the first few verses of chapter 17, where we see opposition to the gospel in both of those cities. What a great reminder that was of the total depravity of man, that because of the fall and without Christ, we are hopelessly enemies of God and bound to respond to the gospel in opposition and hostility. Our natural inclination and our fleshly desire to be autonomous of God is offended by this God's decree that we have trespassed His boundaries and have to answer to Him for it. And the only rescue is by trusting in His Son who died on the cross in our place. That news is offensive to the natural man and will inevitably lead to opposition and hostility. That opposition here in Lystra takes the form of rocks. It takes the form of stones, literal stones that are picked up by the people and thrown at the Apostle Paul. Stoning was a form of capital punishment and the intent was execution. The intent was to execute someone who was found guilty of a particular crime by the crowds picking up rocks and throwing them at a person until that person succumbed finally to the blunt force trauma of being hit by rocks over and over and over again. And that's what happens here with Paul. They stone him to the point where they think he's dead. 
And they take what, th- what they think to be his lifeless body and they drag him out of the city and leave him. Leave him for dead. But he wasn't dead. Somehow, he survived that stoning. Now think with me about that for a moment. Imagine that was you. Imagine you lived in a land where while Christianity was not illegal, it was certainly the minority religion. And because you refused to stop preaching the gospel, the crowds in that land picked up rocks and hurled them at you over and over and over again, trying to murder you. Let's say, like Paul, you survived that miraculously. You don't die. What would you do? I don't know about you. Maybe it's just me, but I think that would be Montlake and Associates time. Time to call Ken Nugent. One call. That's all. Call a lawyer. Call the media. Call the police. I'm not saying those things were wrong. It's not what Paul did. If it was the government who had done that, we would, we would call the media, we'd get on social media, our religious liberty has been violated, our First Amendment rights have been contradicted. Paul doesn't do that. Listen to what he did, verse 20. When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, He went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And what did he do in Derbe? Verse 21, he preached the gospel and made many disciples. See, in the face of hostile opposition to the gospel, Paul and Barnabas were ready and willing to suffer whatever they had to to suffer in order for this gospel mission to continue to advance. They were sold out to this gospel mission. Now this requires that we see ourselves as missionaries. It requires a missionary mindset. Paul and Barnabas knew that they had been sent by the Antioch church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That was their identity. They were a sent people. They were missionaries. And this is what it requires of us, church, to have that kind of missionary mindset. When we understand that we've been giving marching orders by Jesus to take the gospel to the nations, to the ends of the earth, then all of our activities and all of our undertakings in life will be evaluated through that lens. When we have that kind of missionary mindset, we'll be more willing to suffer suffer whatever God requires of us in order for the mission to continue to be advanced. Why? Because that's who we are. We're a missionary. We're a sent people. And that's what we're to be about until he brings us home. But on the other hand, if we think that this is our home, if we love this world more than we love our God, and if we, if we fail to grasp the finality and hopelessness of the final resurrection for our lost friends, neighbors, and coworkers, then we're going to bow under the weight of suffering and persecution that comes our way because of the gospel. And the advance of the gospel mission that has been advancing ever since Paul and Barnabas were sent out from Syria and Antioch will, at least through us, stop its advance. May that not be the case for us. May we be so devoted to Christ, so committed to His mission, That if the mission requires us to suffer, we'll face it willingly and faithfully so that we can continue to preach the gospel and make disciples. So when they're faced with the accolades of man, the blasphemous accolades of man, 
Paul and Barnabas safeguard the gospel. When they're faced with hostility and opposition to the gospel, they're willing to suffer for the sake of the mission so that they continue to preach the gospel and make disciples. But now before we close, I want us to notice something else that they did in light of the growing th- these, these growing threats to the advancement of gospel mission. Because they believed that their mission was that important, and because of the opposition and hostility to the gospel that was growing and growing and growing by each day and getting worse, they made a decision to turn around at Derby and go back through all the cities, doing what? Strengthening the churches. Listen to verses 21 and following. And when they had preached the gospel to that city that is in Derby, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, the place where Paul was stoned. They returned there. And then to Iconium, and then to Antioch. And what were they doing there? Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia on the coast. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adalia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Friends, the the missions strategy of Paul and Barnabas was a church-centered mission. It was a church-centered strategy. The church was not ancillary to this mission. It was, in fact, the very engine of this mission. And so having preached the gospel and made disciples in each one of these cities, now they went back. Now they go back and they're strengthening the church. They're encouraging the believers in these churches. They're reminding them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Spending time with them to give them a robust theology of suffering so that they will be ready when it comes. And they appoint elders, plural, in every church, singular. So from the very beginning, there was a plurality of elders and pastors in each of these new churches that were established. What what, what is Paul and Barnabas doing here? They're strengthening the churches. Because it would be churches like these in each of these cities that would become little Antiochs where men and women would come to faith by responding to the gospel and then grow up in the gospel and then be sent out to go with the gospel. And if this mission was going to succeed, it was going to take a a network, if you will, of healthy biblical churches that were committed to gospel truth and gospel mission who would stop at nothing to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. Church, our King has given us a mission. Be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. But just as there were in Paul's day, so there are in ours things which threaten the advancement of the gospel whether it is the applause of men that entices us and tempts us to soften the gospel or compromise truth, or whether it's the outright blasphemy of our culture that that tempts us to withdraw and isolate and insulate ourselves within our little Christian walls. Or maybe it's the possibility and potential of suffering and real persecution that would seek to silence our voices and our witness in the world. But like Paul, in the face of these threats, may God give us grace and courage to safeguard the gospel, to be willing to suffer for the sake of the mission if that's what it requires. And may we be committed to strengthening churches so that the next generation would be more courageous than we are. Like Paul and Barnabas, let us not be deterred from advancing this gospel mission.
This mission is too important. And Jesus is far too worthy of our faithfulness to this mission for us to let uh, ourselves be deterred from it. So let us be not deterred. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of Paul and Barnabas. As we consider their life and what they went through and what they suffered, we're reminded of how important the mission was to them. We're reminded that they had the identity of a sent one. And in the same breath, we're reminded that we are too. We've been sent by you. We've been given the same mission. And there are likewise threats that would try to stop the advancement of the gospel mission through us. In our world and perhaps even in our own hearts. Father, would you use your word to elicit in us a deep-seated desire to see your mission advanced for your glory by any means necessary through your bride, this church. And Father, would you show each and every one of us in our own lives, in our own homes, in our own neighborhoods and workplaces ways in which we are to engage in this very same mission that Paul and Barnabas engaged with. And as those Things arise that would threaten to stop the advance. Would you give us the courage to safeguard your truth in the gospel? Be willing to suffer whatever offense we must suffer in order for the gospel to continue to advance. And Lord, would you continue to strengthen this and other churches to stay faithful to the mission of bringing the gospel to the nations. Do this for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.